This episode of AD History is brought to you by listeners like you, contributing through the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Learn more about how you can support the show by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast and the exclusive benefits that await you for your generous support. Join us in the effort to keep creating the AD History you deserve by visiting patreon.com forward slash AD History Podcast. Thank you. Smells like a Baku pisser, isn't it? Greetings, by the way. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now, here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you by London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul Katie Casanzo, and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Fun. Fun. I wish my name was Patrick Fun. No, we're keeping that in. It's only one of the uh, video ones. It's only one of the uh, movie reviews. I like the name Patrick Fun. Patrick Fun. Okay. <laughs> well, we're, we, we're off and running today now, aren't we, Patrick? It's It's been a while, Paul. Uh, it's been over three weeks since we last talked because I've had stuff going on in my life. As uh, you know, there's been some sort of changes to the series. Your brother kindly covered it for a couple episodes back, but we should be back on schedule now, Paul. So it's all, it's that kind of episode, you know, things have been disrupted as life happens. So instead of the normal episode, we've got something a little bit different today. Yes, yes, we do. And just like we did back in season two with The Life of Brian, today is another edition of AD History Watches. And this time, we're moving out of antiquity. We're kind of diversifying, I would yeah. say, our AD History Watches catalog, which is a lot of fun, which, of course, is the 2017 comedy, The Death of Stalin. You know, in a way, you and I, from very early on in the show, have kind of lightly portended to the fact that at some point in time, we were going to talk about some Soviet history before we actually come across it much later. Yeah. And this seemed like the perfect opportunity because, like you were saying quite accurately, that you and I have had a bit of stuff going on recently. Uh, all good, all very positive stuff, but mm. it's weird because we haven't seen each other in three weeks, and that feels really strange. Yeah, it does rather, but yeah, yeah, like I'm so used to sort of seeing you, minus like my partner and my family. We're not, yeah, like you're probably the person I see most, obviously, with my workplace. Obviously, we're going out at the moment to see my friends as much. So, yeah. With lockdown, it's been... Yeah. It's been hard to see my wife. Yeah. I, yeah. I see my dad. And and regularly, I see you. So, yeah, what a world and what a time we are living in. But you know what? Here in the United States, I feel like there's been something of a sense of normality coming back with all of it in the greater world. Because now, especially over here, there's no masks. And also, if we're talking about normalcy, there are no trophies for... English national football teams. So no, well, we're all not. we're all good and back on back on track. <laughs> Life is back to normal. <laughs> AD history is back on, and England haven't won any football tournaments. So like we're back in the normal almost. 
you are a legendary good sport, Patrick. <laughs> and with that, we'll lay down our, our necessary, obligatory, now legendary AD History Podcast Ground Rules. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. Just for a historic point before we get into the conversation about the movie itself, I think it is best to set the scene. It is late February 1953, and Yosef Visianovich Zhugashvili, better known as Joseph Stalin, the despot leader of the Soviet Union, the individual who, in many people's views, had accumulated the most personal power in history, and was at the time perhaps the most powerful individual on earth by virtue of the system in which he ruled, is now lying prostrate in his bedroom, in a pool of his own urine. He has suffered what would become a fatal cerebral hemorrhage, and it would not be too much longer until he was officially dead. And this is a major point in the history of the 20th century, because Stalin is one of the mammoth figures of that history, and there's no escaping that. And, of course, he goes in many respects without saying his legacy in terms of everything he did and all the pain that was caused. And certainly the world would not look today had he not come to the power he did in the way that he did in the system that he did. And in this case, what is otherwise in Stalinist Soviet Union was a very dark time. The death of Stalin from 2017 looks to find the humor in it. And they do, don't they? Yeah, so the film starts, it starts obviously while Stalin's still alive. So spoiler, Stalin dies in this movie. Surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> it starts with a orchestra recital and it, it turns out Stalin, the man himself, wanted to listen to this recital, but they forgot to record it. So suddenly the conductor, the people behind the scenes, demand that the orchestra stay there, as do the audience, and sit through the entire thing again so it's uh, recorded so Stalin can enjoy it. And this, it, it's a very funny scene and it, it perfectly captures the fear Stalin had in people. You know, there's that classic story about everyone being too scared to stop clapping him. And the, some of the stories, some of the actual stories we hear about Stalin to our modern ears sound ridiculous. They sound funny. We, we want to laugh at them. And obviously, re realistically, this is a horrifying scenario. You do actually want to be in this scenario, but it just shows how terrifying he was in a very humorous way yeah absolutely i mean when you look at this movie and this is largely how the conversation would go we're going to look at it from the historical mm. perspective in, in as much as we're also looking at it as a film and undeniably the one thing that's what we can be certain of and you and i were talking about this in pre-roll is that this movie is obviously very fast and loose with its history yeah you yeah know, they do a lot of stuff that truncates it amalgamates it all for cinematic and sometimes comedic effect and all of the individuals that are featured in this are historical figures, of course. And they were all very much a part of this situation. And believe me, to say it was a situation is <laughs> an understatement. 
in terms of succession, it was a very difficult thing. And speaking of the historical figures in this film, I just want to reference the actual actors playing those historical figures. Oh, absolutely. The casting was amazing. This film has a terrific, terrific cast. Uh, Steve Buscemi is the lead as uh, Khrushchev. Uh, Simon Russell Beale, who's not as well-known actor, but he does some great stuff as well. He's really good in it as a... Laurenti Beria. Laurenti Beria. And they've also got Jeffrey Tambor, Jason Isaacs, Rupert Fiend. And of course, the guy who connects all of AD History watches, Michael Palin. We had him in the <laughs> yes, Life of Brian. Yes, 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 yes. This he's is back so this time and he's great. And there's even some of the smaller actors. So there's an actor called Paul Chahidi. He plays, I'm just reading off Wikipedia here, Nikolai Bolaganin. He's a terrific comedy actor. He's in a show called This Country. He's terrific in that. He's one of the main roles in that. And you've got another uh, great British comedian called Paul Whitehouse, who is Anastas Mikoyan. I believe he was the yeah. agricultural minister. Uh, at the time, he was yeah. in political limbo because he was really out of favor okay, with yeah. Stalin after the 19th Party Congress. But we'll talk about them a bit yeah. later on. Yeah. The one thing I'll say about the fellow who played Bulganet is that he actually mm. really looked like Bulganet. If you pull up a picture of Bulganet, you'll see what I'm talking about. I'm just looking now. Yeah, you can definitely see that. And Paul Chahidi, the actor who played Bulganet, he actually hasn't got that hair or facial hair. Well, at least he's actually bald in real life. So that's a good wig they put on him. That's a good wig they put on quite a few people in this in this uh, film. Save uh, Simon Russell Beale, of course. Yes. Who played uh, Paul Whitehouse, who played Mickey Arn, was is just a terrific actor. And it's just great to see him in a film like this. And yeah, the, the cast is fantastic. It really is. And like, like we're saying in the open here, it, it really gets into the foibles of the really Kafka-esque Soviet bureaucracy and the oh, yeah. climate of paranoia that Stalin very consciously orchestrated in his regime. You can see it in a lot of different places. Like I'll give a great example is early on when Beria first arrives and then Malenkov gets there and he says, oh my God, you know, what's happened? He's irreplaceable. And then he says, replacing him as acting general secretary and and Barry looks up at him and said, you said he was irreplaceable. Like, he is irreplaceable. Okay, I, I, I was testing you. That's, <laughs> that's the kind of thing that we're talking about when we're talking yeah. about the culture of paranoia that existed in this regime. Because with Stalin, a few errant words could turn that paranoia of his, which was legendarily epic, and can end in a very bad situation. And a lot of this film sort of centers around the classic, I mean, this is something I'm learning about, it's called de-Stalinification of the USSR, which happened straight, uh, happened like Khrushchev got to work on that more or less straight after his death. And even in this film, we see Khrushchev played by Buscemi, just trying to get on with that straight away. And I just find that fascinating as well, how despite how loved he was, they were they were pretty quick to try and dismantle his cult of personality and we see that in this film yeah it took khrushchev some time to do it oh yeah because, yeah in real life yeah yeah because in as far as this movie is about the death of stalin it's also about the power struggle that existed after his death because the vacuum exactly the way the soviet system was set up is uh rather opaque to most westerners that are used to a certain form of democracy you know you had chamber of ministers or or uh, various chancellors of the ministry, which are considered basically head of government. That's what the premier set. If you're the chairman of the councils of ministers, you're technically the premier. And then you had the head of the communist party. And they're two separate apparatus that kind of fuse each other, where the council of ministers and the governmental side are largely enacting the directives from the party itself. And it's a one party state. So, you know, they're, they're two mm. separate organs that are serving a singular purpose that is well understood and established at this point. 
And I think that can be a little hard to understand for outsiders sometimes. You know, we we don't grow up, any of us for the most part, getting a lesson in Soviet civic. Yeah, yeah. You know, we mentioned how this movie is very fast and loose with its history. Mm. And there's there's a lot of artistic liberty that's taken here, by all means. There's a lot there's a lot of accuracy, but there's also a lot of artistic liberty. So, Paul, you're a much much more knowledgeable about Russian history than I am. As much as I enjoy it, I definitely am not the uh, most m- m- most clued up in Russian history as much as I want to be. If I'll say a question to you, what is the single most historically inaccurate thing about this film? What would be your response? I mean, where do you start? <laughs> That's a difficult question because I remember I was watching a review of this movie a couple years back shortly after it came out. And I actually came across it again the other day from mm. a YouTube historian who's extremely, extremely good at what he does. He's an actual PhD. I'm not going to use his name. If you guys are up with YouTube and you happen to find it and you kind of connect the dots, that's fine. And I have tremendous respect for this guy, but he seemed to kind of miss the point, I think, which <laughs> is to say that he was extremely harsh and critical of the inaccuracy of the movie. I'm going to answer your question in a moment. but <laughs> But at the same time, this film does not try to make any claims to historical accuracy. That was not the point of it, by any means. So what is the most historically inaccurate thing here? A lot of it has to do with what happens after Stalin dies. Not even, well, there are definitely quite a bit few things in the funeral, but how truncated events are that lead to Beria's execution. The way the movie portrays it is that literally right out after the end of his funeral, they have that presidium meeting where they basically capture Beria by surprise mm. and not just remove him from the party, but put a dense sentence into his head. And I got yeah. bad news for you folks. It didn't happen on that timeline at all. I don't believe that particular presidium meeting happened until June or July of 1953. What happened was, is that when Stalin died, there was no question in many people's mind who was there, that Beria saw this as his opportunity to really take power. So let's talk a little bit about who Lavrenti Beria is, because he really, yeah. and more or less, honestly, he is the main character in this movie. He really is, and that was something I wasn't expecting, but no, he's more, yeah, he's more or less the central focus of it. And once again, Simon Russell Beale did a fantastic job, especially for mm. a guy that's as a bloodstained criminal as Beria. Yeah. So Lavrenti Beria was, is a native Georgian, just like Stalin. And he basically, you know, putting this all kind of in a nutshell without getting into too many extraneous facts here, he basically came up making his name through the security services in the Soviet Union. And he ended up rising to the head of the NKVD, which is basically the Soviet secret police, in 38 or 39, and he ended up succeeding Nikolai Yezhov, who was the head of the NKVD at the height of the Great Terror, which is pretty nuts. He not only was the head of the NKVD starting in the late 30s, he was also the head of the NKVD throughout World War II. After the war ended, he ended up officially stepping down from security services position, and he ended up then focusing on the project for the Soviet Union's first atomic bomb, both in terms of the espionage that their agents managed to acquire in the United States from the Manhattan Project, then actually constructing it and successfully detonating it in 1949 in an operation that was called by the Soviets first lightning, and in the West we knew it as Joe 1. 
that was one of the big things in the Cold War that really kind of cemented the great superpower rivalries at the time. Mm. And he was still very much involved in that by the time of Stalin's death, in addition to somebody like Nikolai Buganin, who was the Minister for Defense at the point of Stalin's death. He was brutal. This man was very brutal. He was very ambitious. But he only really seemed to pay lip service to ideology. He was much more interested in the practical acquisition of power and practically furthering his ambitions, which he did very well. He definitely did make a career out of pleasing Stalin, as did all of these guys in the Politburo. So did Barry have quite high intentions of taking over from Stalin as the leader of the USSR? From everything that historians can tell, the answer is absolutely yes. Yeah. Absolutely yes. But that's not what happened. No. So they enter this period of what they call collective leadership, where in this case, Beria, of course, is in the Presidium, formerly the Politburo. Then there's Khrushchev. And then, of course, who was the party secretary for Moscow. And then you had Gergi Malenkov, who, among the other things that they did, because they all had numerous titles and responsibilities. He was first deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers. Then Stalin dies. He ends up moving up into that position. And when you're in that position, that's where the premier is. That's where the official head of government is. So it lasts about three or four months. And everybody's absolutely terrified of Beria, and they should be, because mm -hmm. Beria even still has a lot of resources within the secret police. It's no longer the NKVD. The NKVD got wrapped up into the MVD in about 1946. And then both the MVD and the MGB end up getting rolled into the very notorious KGB, I believe, in about 1954. And over that time, they're all terrified because he has all these resources. He legitimately has an infrastructure of personal power that can cause him to take soul power. So everybody around him is extremely terrified of him because they think, we don't act. This mm -hmm. guy's going to kill us all, and he will. In fact, it's interesting. There's a line at the end of the movie that says, we either kill him now or live to see his revenge. That's, mm. a, that's a perfect way to explain their thinking at the time, even though it didn't transpire in the way that the movie shows it, to be sure. And basically what happens is after the East Berlin uprising later on in 1953, this gets blamed on Beria. Rightfully or wrongfully, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. It was on him. Basically, the way it went down is they had a presidium meeting where out of nowhere, trying to keep it as secret as possible from Beria, they would bring up the conduct of Comrade Beria, and then began listing off his offenses to the party and the nation. They accused him of wanting to trade East Germany to the West in exchange for some sort of aid, which is actually not entirely implausible, though there's nothing to suggest he actually made any progress towards doing that. He always felt that East Germany was kind of a joke, that it was just like this created state that served no great purpose as well as conspiring with Western powers, things of that nature, in addition to all the other terrible shit that he did in, as head of the security services. Yeah. So this is all orchestrated by Khrushchev in alliance with Marshal Zhukov, and that was, of course, played by Jason Isaacs in a brilliant performance. I've, Zhukov stole the show in this one. He's, he's very, very good. And Jason Isaacs is such a versatile actor. He's obviously... Um... I guess probably most people would know him as Malfoy's dad in the Harry Potter films. It's true. Where, yeah, it's, 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 it's night and day. He's like sort of like the sort of fancy band, like very sort of fancy and posh world to do in Harry Potter. In this, you know, he's portrayed as like rough, like he's got his Yorkshire accent on. And something else I love about this film is how they, they don't even attempt, no, they did not attempt to not speak Russian. 
they don't even all agree on an accent or yeah, like like they're all just speaking like some have English accents, some have American accents, just whatever you speak normally, just use that. And that that's another factor about this film I really enjoyed. It made it brilliant. It gave it a sort of an unreal quality that was amazing. Mm. And so the reason why Zhukov was so important is he managed to use his best and most loyal troops to cordon off the meeting place. So that way Beria couldn't escape or communicate with any potential allies in the security service that might have extricated him from the situation. And basically they put the death sentence on his head then and there. And he was then brought to a secret facility of the Red Army, which apparently not even the security services knew about. He basically languished in a cell until I think maybe November, December of 53, when he was executed. And it's an interesting story, his execution, because they were afraid to do it at first. And they actually had to call in somebody that was higher, high ranking enough to pull the trigger because everybody was, was terrified of the potential outcome. That was one of the things about this movie that's so interesting that it does quite well, is you see a lot of deferring of decisions, like putting things off to yeah. either a higher figure or just someone else. And this is a very Stalinist quality because you never want to be responsible for a decision that might go bad in Stalin's eyes. And so Stalin, even though he is dead in this movie, it's still very much present for all yeah, of them. looming over everything. Absolutely, because all of these guys were, you know, basically forged in the fire of Stalinist paranoia and just absolutely vicious violence. And Beria was among some of the most violent. You know, the, uh, it was said that he would even involve himself in certain interrogations, getting physically involved in beating a certain suspect with a trunch. I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing we're talking yeah. about here. He was also a violent womanizer and yeah. basically abused a position of that nature in any way you can imagine. This guy was nasty business. And the movie does a very good job of portraying that reality, albeit with a humorous twist. Yeah, like most of these people were pretty dull and pleasant, but you can't help but feel sympathy for many of them. Or like, you know, like this film does have good guys, it does have bad guys, despite in history, we'll probably call all of these people bad guys. And someone who really stood out for me in this film was Stalin's son, Vasily. He, he actually had my, the part that made me laugh the most, the laugh out loud is when he's on the floor and spits and it just goes onto his forehead. <laughs> that just really tickled me like he was very 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 funny in this film he was and he was actually he was actually pretty i remember when i did my other only stalin's left video i remember vasily was a pretty wild card himself he was basically what we would call today a communist princeling mm. he was the son of stalin's second wife mm. and stalin's second wife also had a daughter with stalin that went by the name of svetlana alaluyeva we'll She's talk in about her well. in a bit yeah, yeah. But before we get into the personal stuff, let's kind of hit the, the big picture in the head in terms of what actually happened when Stalin died. Yes. Because yeah. this is, of course, the, the core of the movie. This is, every, this is the inciting incident. So we move to the inciting incident. This is late February of 1953. They give his official date of death, like, what, 3 or 5 March of 1953, I think. That's not when he actually died. He died easily about a week earlier than that. And he was at what they call his Kuncievo Dasha, or the Nir Dasha, which was a little compound that, not so little, two floors, it was entirely cordoned off, just in the outskirts of Moscow, where he basically went tired. He had something like 13 Dashas throughout the Soviet Union, not all of them even visited in his time, which is interesting, because some of them he had built especially for him. Mm. And 
one night he goes into his room and he's always kind of like switching rooms of where he sleeps because he's always afraid mm. and paranoid of assassination. This is this is Stalin to a T. Not that that's necessarily all that impractical, but whatever the case is. And with Stalin, whatever room he's sleeping in, you do not enter that room without express permission from him. <laughs> that is a very quick way to sign your own death certificate, to be sure. And he's a night owl both in terms of work and play. They show this really well in the movie when they're having one of those boozy dinners over at the Kuncievo Dasha. And they're watching a Western, and I checked it. Stalin did actually love Western films. He did, but in terms of the Westerns, though, interesting note, none of them had Russian subtitles. They all watched it in straight English, so they had no idea what they were saying. <laughs> they just enjoyed seeing the cowboys run around. That's all that it was. And the scene there is like, everyone's like, oh man, look at the hour, it's time to go. And Stalin's like, so... Who's up for a cowboy movie? Who's in my posse? <laughs> and you do not dare decline that. Yeah. At even, all. Even his closest allies, like the people you'd most likely think they'd say no to him, they're still just as... It wasn't just the common people terrified of Stalin. Everyone and anyone, even these people who were his like... Like if me and you were like with a sitting, like having a late night, and I was like, oh, do you want to watch another film, Paul? You'd be like, no, I want to go to bed. And vice versa, you'd have that confidence with someone you care for. Yeah. But even these people were supposed to be, I guess, like his closest friends. Yeah. They were still too scared to say that. Absolutely. And saying no to Stalin in any context is a very dangerous thing. There were only very few people in very narrow circumstances that could actually do that. And this was definitely yeah. not one of those times. So he goes in and his NKVD guards start getting a bit nervous when he's not waking up at his usual late morning hour and they're not hearing any commotion, nothing's going on, and they begin to kind of panic a little. I believe someone might have said that they saw a light go on, but I can't confirm that. And so you start getting later on in the day and all of the emotions and the fear in the house with all the servants, the guards, is starting to palpably rise and then basically somebody says we need to send somebody in there and what they ended up doing was they sent the most innocuous person they could find which was one of stalin's closest servants that he had every reason to not question their loyalty could be working for him a long time not that that saves you believe me but and they send her in there with a packet of the delivery of official documents that comes every day from the kremlin to to his dasha there and he is found on the ground in a pool of his own piss this is yeah. very clearly demonstrated in the movie. In this case, they're showing this person bringing in his preferred breakfast and tea, but it was very likely, at least according to Joshua Rubinstein in The Last Days of Stalin, which covers this subject very thoroughly, mm. she was the one who was sent in there, and that's where they found him. So naturally, Stalin is unconscious in the floor in a pool of his own urine, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And so the first person they end up calling, interestingly enough, is Beria, but they have, they're having a little trouble finding Beria, because mm. Beria is non-official activities are, are very under the radar, and he has a lot of extracurricular activities, let's put it that way. Nothing you, anybody wants to think about, I can assure you. Then, of course, they also get a hold of Malenkov, and they're the first ones who actually arrive at Kuntievitasha. They haven't contacted anybody else. And when they come in there, and Beria in particular, he looks down at him and she's like, Comrade Stalin's just sleeping. Leave him alone and don't bother <laughs> me. And then both he and Malenkov actually leave. And then at least, at least 12 hours later, they call again. And that's when all of the inner circle of power begins 
basically descending onto the Kuntsevo Dasha. And it has been speculated, and it's probably not together, altogether all too unfounded, that Beria knew exactly what he was looking at, but was trying to create more time where Stalin would go untreated. Given Beria's very clear aspirations for power, in addition to the fact he and Stalin's relationship was certainly beginning to sour at this point in time, though Beria was still extremely useful, so nothing happened to him, he in particular had a lot to gain from putting this off. They all descend, and then they start getting the doctors. But this is where things get interesting. Oh, God, the doctors, yes. I, this is great. Like, well, we need doctors. Like, you killed all the best doctors. They're all in prison now. Like, yeah, all the best doctors of uh, Russia had either been killed or sent away. So they had rummage around for any doctor they could find. And how historically accurate is that, Paul? I'd love to know. It's historically accurate in a very specific way. So there's a little bit of context here to understand exactly what's going on. So by February of 1953, for several weeks at this point, since the hammer actually fell on the operation, Stalin had invented what was called today, and shortly thereafter, quote, the doctor's plot. Mm -hmm. This suggested that the best and highest ranking doctors, who are all Jewish, might I add, were conspiring Mm -hmm. to poison the Soviet leadership. This was entirely invented. And I'll get back to the bigger idea of why. But basically, then they go and start arresting all the best doctors that are also Jewish. And this is being done by the security services. They're sitting in a Lubyanka cell and they're just kind of wallowing away. Yeah. Best at what they do. But at the same time, they were also the exact people Stalin needed at the time if he had any chance to survive. Yeah. So Stalin's own downfall was just his own paranoia and madness. And this is just another great example of that. Definitely poetic justice in every way that matters, to be sure. And the doctor's plot has a bigger picture, which is to say that since about 46 or 47, the Soviet Union had been slowly creating a a greater state-sponsored anti-Semitism. This had to do specifically with a few different events. There was one of 46 or 47 with what was known as the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. That's not so important. But there was another one. There was a visit by Golda Meir. Golda mm-hmm. Meir was the fourth prime minister of Israel. And at this point in time, you know, you get to, you're getting to 1948. And of course, you have the creation of the state of Israel, the nascent state of Israel. As far as the Cold War was concerned, they were not so eager to pick sides at that point, as I understand it. But the Golda Meir visit to the Soviet Union really set off Stalin's once again paranoia because he was noticing how many Russian Jews and and, and their great expression of joy to see her and this creation of this new Israeli state. And he began questioning Jews' loyalty to the Soviet Union over that of Israel. He really started focusing in on Zionist conspiracy. We've heard this tune before not too long ago in a certain place in Europe prior to the end of yeah. World War Two. It, it's it's just bonkers. I mean, we talked about this when when Sam was on the show. We talked about the Bakkerah revolts. The Jewish people is just constantly they're just constantly the target, and it's just it's just awful. And even here, even though even in the direct aftermath of the Holocaust, it's just happening all over again. It's bizarre and it's awful. Just leave these people alone for Christ's yeah. sake. Anyway, that's just a bit amusing on our part, mm. but. This was also really punctuated by Vyacheslav Molotov's wife, Polina, who was Mm. Jewish. 
and was a close friend of Golda Meir. And Polina, because Vyacheslav Molotov was, for the most part, during Stalin's reign, his right-hand man. Just like Joseph Stalin, Stalin, of course, is a revolutionary nom de guerre, translates into basically man of steel. So Vyacheslav Molotov was born Vyacheslav Skidabin, mm. and Molotov was based on the Russian word for the hammer, mullet. Mm. Molotov, you get the idea. She was very close friends with Golda Meir. And from what we can tell, Polina had been on Stalin's shit list for some time for numerous reasons. She was very opinionated, very strong. She actually held some very powerful positions in the Soviet Union as a minister, to be sure. But really the thing that in all likelihood may have really set off in Stalin's mind is that she was basically the best friend of his late second wife, Nadia. And for those of you who are not familiar, Nadia Alalueva, Stalin's second wife, committed suicide in November of 1932 by shooting herself in the heart after a public incident at a reception, private reception, to be sure, for Revolution Day at the Voroshilovs, which always hosted it every year. And afterwards, when the scene was over and Nadia goes rushing off, and to be clear, guys, Nadia, today we would recognize as having some very serious mental health issues. Yeah. Yes, you know, so this is somebody who would be getting very specific treatment that just didn't exist at the time, and even if it did, they still might not have done anything about it. Even though, interestingly enough, a lot of these Kremlin higher-ups were all hypochondriacs. They're always talking mm. about the various treatments they're doing and various places they're going to go to take care of this condition. It's a weird, weird contrast. And she ended up walking around the Kremlin with her several times, talking with her after what happened to kind of calm her down. Polina was talking to Nadia. And then Nadia went back to her room shortly thereafter and shot herself in the heart. And Stalin was really quite emotionally amputated by this event from everything scholars can tell. Very mm. difficult to put together concretely because the various sources are, they all have their own twist on it. But he was clearly not in a good place. And so once, since Paulina was so closely associated to Nadia and he's associating her with his wife's suicide, then you have something like this happen where anti-Semitism was already on his mind, questioning the loyalty of Soviet Jews, Golda Meir. You get to the doctor's plot. So there's this whole big context going on in regards to this general anti-Semitic campaign that's being ramped up in the Soviet Union by Stalin at that time. So that's the whole idea behind the doctors. Mm. And okay, as yeah. far as the doctors go, they have very interesting recollections on this because they had been there and there for at least several weeks, possibly months. And then all of a sudden their interrogators were coming in asking very specific medical questions that pertain to their medical specialties. And they all began thinking, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. These security forces interrogators are really a piece of work, I can assure you. You do not want to be interrogated in the Lubyanka, believe me. Not that I've been there, but hey, <laughs> you want to know what? If you've read Gulag Archipelago and you have went and heard the recollections of the Blue Caps in the first volume, you'll know what we're talking about. But it's also extremely well documented otherwise. They were so taken, it was like, what the hell is going on here? And then the interrogators would ask them, do you have any references that a, a doctor, a good doctor that we could talk to about this, you know, that isn't sitting behind bars. And every one of them that they talked to, all of the referrals they gave were for doctors that were also in the same prison that they weren't aware <laughs> of as being in prison. So as dark oh, it dear, is, there yeah. is, there is this bizarre kind of comedy to the whole thing. Yeah. So dark humored. And that's what I was saying at the beginning of this, how like, this wasn't funny stuff, but it's just so bizarre and so awful. You just, some of the stories, you just can't help but laugh in disbelief at some of the things that happened in Stalin's Russia. And this film really does a great job encapsulating that bizarreness, that disbelief that 
this period of time in this country had on these on these people. I say something else I never actually knew is I actually always presumed Stalin died on the spot. I thought they found him in his office or bedroom uh, dead, but he was actually still alive. He survived for a few more days or weeks or so where he was taken. Days. In the it film, was definitely it was days. Days, yeah. yeah. He was taken to another place and that's why and he was actually sort of like gained consciousness for a little bit. I don't know how much accuracy there is in that, but the fact they were having like this conversation, I, I presume they were having that conversation over his dead body, but he wasn't. He was still alive and kicking, though very... Very unconscious. It's just I just found that fascinating. That's a slice of history I didn't know about, which is actually true. In a way, because of the fact that he was still technically alive, it very much hampered his inner circle. You know, basically, let's just call him mm. the Politburo. Calling him the Presidium is just annoying. The Politburo, given the fact he's still alive, they're all terrified about making decisions just in case he wakes up. Exactly, and they're all like when they are when he when they first come into that room, they're all still like, "Oh, Stalin, oh, we love you." They're still like. In case there's a small part of his brain that's listening in, they're still so sympathetic and upset. Like some of them are crying over his body. And while I was watching that, I was like, are they really that sad? Or are they just playing it safe in case he pulls through from this? And it was just fascinating that even when he's in a coat, like even when he's on the cusp of death, they're still too scared to say anything negative about him. And interestingly enough, quite a few of them do actually have personal fondness for the man. Okay. Stalin could be incredibly charming in a very odd way. He was not like this big speaker that you would see. You'll never see him out there pontificating like a Hitler did or a Mussolini did. He was much more what we would call a very active listener. Mm. He was very good at recognizing the cut and thrust of a conversation and a problem into finding the solution that he was looking for. So Stalin was a lot more interested in what was going in his ears and was very, very exacting in terms of what came out of his mouth which is a big difference to be sure. You know, when we're looking at the whole anti-Semitic thing, and this is definitely the work of Simon Sebag Montefiore, especially in Stalin Court of the Red Czar, which I think it came out in about 2004. It exists both obviously hardback, softback, and audiobook at this point in time. But this is a subject you're interested in. It's Stalin or the Stalin system, Soviet Union. It's a really great starting place for anybody that wants to learn more about it that doesn't require more than kind of like entry-level understanding of the subject, but there's a keen interest in doing so, so I would highly recommend it. The anti-Semitic campaign that was effectively kind of forming over time here is very atypical to Stalin's own history, because from the time he was a revolutionary prior to the 1917 Bolshevik coup and, and winning the Civil War, and then, of course, for a long time in power, so many of his, you know, his various comrades in power as well as the general social circle that was around him, was very heavily Jewish. Through most of the 1930s, after his wife's death, most of the women that were around him, there's probably at least a half dozen that he was continually seeing and in contact with, they were all Jewish. I mean, they were Bolsheviks first, but they were most certainly Jewish. And he never overtly made any sort of aspersion to that reality. In fact, he was Lazar Kaganovich. He's in this movie, but doesn't have very many lines. Mm. They call Kaganovich the Minister for Labor, and that's as accurate as a title as any. I don't want to get too bogged down in yeah. those details. But Kaganovich was Jewish. And there was even an occasion, this is brought up by Stephen Kotkin, who is quite literally the best biographer of Stalin who's ever written. He's already published two volumes of a three-volume biography that is basically cradled to grave a little before and a little after that is masterful. And he mentions about the sensitivity that Kaganovich once had at some kind of small gathering among the, that inner circle there. 
where there was a you know a few Jewish jokes thrown around, and he, Stalin could very clearly see that Kaganovich was you know he was wounded by this, even though they all very much identify as Bolshevik, and it's kind of the way kind of Trotsky put it was he called it almost his Jewish shell. That's mm. kind of the way that one would describe most of the high bigwigs that were also also born Jewish in in the Soviet Union, and that were in power at this time. And when Stalin saw that Kaganovich clearly was emotionally wounded, he didn't join into the fun. In fact, he cut out the conversation completely and went out of his way not to do those kind of jokes or foster those kind of jokes when Kaganovich was around. So this is very atypical for Stalin. Something switched in his mind, which is to say that when Stalin no longer trusted you insofar as he trusted anybody, you were dead. You were dead. Yeah whether that's yeah. an individual or an entire group of people. Believe me, Stalin knew something about collective punishment. Just ask the Crimean Tartars about that, yeah. among others, might I add. Uh, something I'm interested in, and that's with uh, Jeffrey Tambor's character of uh, Georgi Malenkov? Georgi, 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 Georgi Malenkov. So he did actually... If you look at a list of rulers of the USSR, he is, I mean, most people believe that Khrushchev, I mean, my history was that Khrushchev followed Stalin, but... Effectively, he did. Yeah, he was actually leader of um, the USSR. I'd love to know what happened there. How long was he actually in power for? I'd love to, because like I said, I, I I know these, I know the broad strokes, but you know the nitty gritty. I'd love to hear more about that guy, because in he, he's, the, he, he's depicted as being quite subdue and weak greatly by Jeffrey Tambor in almost, this. Almost, like, almost with a, a very negative connotation feminine quality. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd love to know how accurate that is to, well, how history, real history is depicted this, uh, this person. How accurate is that? So like many of his cohorts in this case, he was very ambitious. They make a quip in the death scene of Stalin where they're, they're all there and they're picking up the body and they're putting him on kind of that divan. Mm. And he mentions how he has a bad back and somebody quips, yeah, from all that social climbing you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Which is yeah. always a great joke. And so he was somebody that did very much end up cultivating a strong working relationship and personal relationship with Stalin. He wouldn't have become the first deputy of the chairman of ministers had he not been so. In addition to like the many other titles these guys all have at once. Like I was saying earlier, there is no just one role for them. This is kind of the, the nature of how the Stalinist regime was created. And to that end, with that quality that they present him, it's an exaggerated form of something he was actually teased about in real life. I don't know if it was actually to his face. They used to refer to him as Melanie. <laughs> yeah. He ends up becoming part of this triumvirate that I mentioned. Mm. And I believe around, I want to say 1957, he was part of what ended up being called the anti-party coup, which included him, it included Molotov, and I think it may have even included Kaganovich, I'm going off the top of my head here, to basically depose Khrushchev from power, and it mm. failed. And basically what happened was Kaganovich gets shuttled into retirement, becomes a pensioner in Moscow, same thing happens to Molotov. In fact, Kaganovich actually, before even retirement, gets sent out to like some podunk factory that he has to manage well out of the way. And the exact same thing ends up happening to Malenkov. Malenkov and Molotov and Kaganovich and the rest of them, they all underestimated Nikita Khrushchev. Because let's understand who Nikita Khrushchev was. Yeah. Nikita Khrushchev was born a Ukrainian peasant. And in many ways, that upbringing, just like any person, never left him. 
you know, he could be very, very mercurial. You know, he could go from being extremely genial and friendly to just totally exploding. His wife used to say he's either all the way up or all the way down. His second wife, Nina, we see her in a few scenes when he's back home mm. telling her all the things that he thought he said drunkenly at the party the night before. Which actually, I think he did, So, which is interesting. <laughs> and I also like the, the portrayal of his second wife, Nina, there, because she was very smart, very mm. well-educated. He was not like a literate or something like that. He didn't have what we would call a super sophisticated view of politics, but he had a very strong practical view of politics mm. and how power worked and how to game the system. And for the most of his career prior to Stalin's death, making a career out of pleasing Stalin. And the irony, of course, is that with the not so secret speech at the 20th Party Congress that essentially denounced Stalin and was one of the major points of de-Stalinization under Khrushchev. A lot of the crimes that he was mentioning that Stalin perpetrated, Khrushchev actively was involved in. Mm -hmm. Like a great example was yeah. he, he was a top Communist Party leader in Ukraine during the Red Terror. He would brag about purging the party spotless in Ukraine. Gosh, okay. <laughs> like, like the, like the yeah. rest of them, they were all up to their necks in innocent blood. Yeah, they were all pretty, pr pretty unpleasant people. And I was just going through our notes as well, and... Looking through our notes we have for this, and you've got the mention at Stalin's funeral, there's anger that bishops are there. And Paul, you seem to both have some light on why they were angry if bishops were there. This is an interesting question, because the relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Soviet Union does evolve mm. over time. So the Soviet Union is an officially atheist state. Mm. And of course, after the revolution, especially under Lenin, Lenin spent a lot of time focusing in on the church. And when Lenin was eventually sidelined after his couple of strokes, and of course he dies in 1924 from a last deadly stroke, Stalin continues this as well. It's an interesting thing because this country has only recently gone communist, especially the peasantry, which makes up something like 80% of the total population. They're all very much steeped in the Russian Orthodox Church, communism or no communism. And so a lot of people would practice their Christianity in secret. But this changed specifically after the 22nd of June, 1941, Operation Barbarossa, Nazi Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union. And it changes for a very specific reason. Because for the first two years of the war, it was going really bad. Nazis taken a lot of territory, yeah. a lot of prisoners, a lot of destruction. And Stalin, who attended a Russian Orthodox seminary and nearly graduated, the only reason he didn't graduate is because he didn't sit for his final exams, especially after finding his true religion of Marxism-Leninism, he recognized that these people needed something to believe in and help them cope that wasn't just communism. In fact, this was an ongoing theme during the war. He went from defending the revolution to defending the motherland, a much more nationalistic <laughs> concept than defending the revolution, which realistically not all the country was necessarily, you know, all that keen on. Go look down in Ukraine, you know, quite a few Ukrainian peasants who, who survived collectivization did not have a very high opinion of Stalin. So he allowed the church to reopen during the war, and I believe it did remain open, but under very strict guidelines. And he even allowed them to appoint their first patriarch in like a century, in 1943. Wow. Yeah. So there was religious life. Khrushchev ended up rolling this back when he ended up coming up to power, because Khrushchev was very pro-atheism and making sure that's the case. Mm -hmm. But it would make all the sense in the world that the bishops would show up, especially because, you know, you're trying not to piss off your, your masters and allowing you to continue, as far as I know. So why did Khrushchev invite the bishops to the uh, funeral if he was against them? In the film, anyway. I don't think 
he was the one who invited them. He was the one who was angry oh, was about it. Oh, was he not? It. Oh, my bad. He was the one who was angry about it, you know. He said, quote, who invited the boyfriends of Christ? That's the one, yeah. Sorry, no apologies. I got my, got my wires mixed up. No, 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 no. I would say that was probably pretty accurate. I mean, even when his first wife died, he didn't mm. allow the, the casket to go through the church on the way to the cemetery. I mean, that's, that's yeah. how fixed he was in this. So it's a, really a complicated picture when it comes to the church because it's so much up and down and all around. This it's not it's not linear in the least in terms of its treatment and what the official communist doctrine of the Soviet Union was. I'm sure it would have looked awkward. I don't have much information in terms of them actually attending Stalin's funeral. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff at Stalin's funeral that's just comedic for effect. Yeah, yeah, like when they're slowly like moving around each other. Often they want to change positions and they're sort of just slowly going through it. And that's that was really funny. Yeah, absolutely. They're trying to make it part of the event. And it's interesting because, like I said, it is a very complicated picture here. And even before we get to the actual funeral in this case, let's finish hmm. off on his death. So they all basically descend in. And it's interesting because a few things happen. One is they start publishing in Pravda, which is one of the official communist you know, newspaper mouthpieces for mm. the Soviet Union, daily updates on Stalin's condition. And obviously it's not good. So how, and in reality, how long did the news of Stalin's death slash Stalin uh, brain hemorrhage, how long did it take for the public to find out about that? Or was it kept under close wraps that he was dying slash dead? I think it was a few days. They were mm. very careful how to message it and roll it out. Because they didn't want people to freak out because, guys, it may be hard to believe now, but he was popular. Not with everybody, yeah. but he was popular. He was he was popular, like, obviously not by this period, but he was Uncle Joe. He was popular around the world. He was seen as like a friendly face. He, as, he, he was an ally. He was against the Nazis. He was an ally of the US and the UK. He, he, he was yeah. a very popular figure. It was. Uh, it really fell apart after the blockade of Berlin in 1948. Mm. When it was becoming perfectly obvious this was turning into an east-west rivalry. Mm. And of course, Stalin did not come out of that particular situation well, because that was the Berlin airlift. We started bringing all the supplies that need, were needed for West Germany in the air through the one corridor that we could access it. It was one of the great accomplishments of the Truman administration, to be sure. And it also helped solidify a whole bunch of future possibilities, including NATO, to be sure. Mm. Yeah, by this time, he's, he's, he's still very popular in his own country. And to an extent, he's still popular today in Russia. As yeah, hard as that is yeah, to believe. Yeah, he's on the rise, isn't he? I think, I saw I was reading an article somewhere that like quite a few young people are really into him at the moment. Russian politics are difficult to understand, even if, especially as an outsider. But I think there's something you can take away from this. is Now, it's not exactly a secret, all the things that he was involved in, even in Russia. But as a figure, especially under the Putin regime, they like to stand him and kind of parade him in a very stage-managed fashion through a very strictly nationalistic point of view. They don't talk anything about communism. They, don't want, they want to keep that as far away as possible mm. or any talk of revolution. You get it? You know, back when we yeah, had the cent yeah. centenary back in 2017 of the Bolshevik revolution, the Bolshevik coup, they really, really officially tapered it down because they want no instability. If you lived in Russia in the 90s or know about how that went down, you'll understand, in addition to just Putin wanting to solidify his own power, not introduce yeah. any unnecessary threats. But the thing you're never going to be able to take away from him, as much of a bloodstained criminal as he was, is that he still won the war. Yeah. When 
there's a decent chance that almost anybody else in his position would have led to the Soviet Union's capitulation. And you'll never be able to take that away from him. In addition to the fact there is, you know, something kind of a, of a latent culture in, in Russia of the belief that Russia requires a strong man. Yeah. And Russia will always, like, even to this day, yeah, Putin, as you were saying, he has... He has something, I guess, something of a similar image to uh, to, to Stalin as being the strong man. Like, we, yeah. there's memes, there's silly pictures of of Putin, and he, he's former KGB himself. Am I correct in saying that? He absolutely was. Yeah. So, and in fact, his grandfather, I believe, was both the personal cook for both Lenin and Stalin. <laughs> well, there you go then. Yeah, well, that's, I'm sure one of the reasons why he was allowed to be accepted into the KGB because he had a mm. family history of loyalty. So. You know, that, that's kind of Stalin today. And he, like I said, he was very popular at the time, to be sure. So they were very careful to stage manage that part of it. Mm. And they did a couple other things that were interesting as well. At the Kremlin, they had a medical team going into the Kremlin and upstairs. This whole show that you could see from Red Square into mm. the, the Senate building, that's where his Kremlin office was, a little corner is what they called it. But there was mm. no one there. It was entirely a show. I was thinking that he didn't die in the Kremlin. No, he, he didn't die in his Kremlin office or his Kremlin apartment. And this was something that was actually picked up by Joshua Rubenstein from the book we mentioned earlier, mm. which was there was this popular perception that was cultivated, obviously, a great deal through propaganda that Stalin never left his office or the Kremlin. And nobody knew that he had a nearby Dasha that he would go to. They were basically poning them around. It was yeah. they were show horsing, more or less. Yeah. In addition to the fact that the doctors that they did bring in, they didn't take any of the prisoners that were actually knew what they were doing that were doctors out of jail at this point. They were also doing things like putting leeches on him. Just trying anything. Yeah, that and there's some speculation that in Russia, especially when you have a large peasant population, that was a form of medical treatment that they would recognize as being significant. And that way you could also report it in the press in their daily updates of Stalin's death. Hmm. And of course, when he actually dies, he's surrounded by this polypure, he's surrounded by Vasily and Svetlana, who we'll get to both in a moment. Yeah. He has a prolonged and awful death agony yeah. before the soul was wrenched from the body. And now, according to Khrushchev in his memoirs, which might I add, he wrote under protest when he was basically under house arrest after being taken out of power. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the way he put it, they're protecting me from the people and they're protecting the people from me. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. And he sat there yeah. with his son and recorded a completely unedited, uncensored version of his memoirs, which you can get now in its unredacted quality anywhere you want. And this is something they show in the movie, I believe. This mm. is something that also Khrushchev talks as well. I think Svetlana may even mention it in her memoirs as well, where once it's clear that Stalin's dead, the first person up is Beria. He's not upset. He's almost glowing with enthusiasm even though all the people around him are legitimately sad remember these guys actually liked him despite yeah. fearing him a great deal and the word was krustalyov my car and then heads right to the kremlin and then mm. after that everybody who remains this whole cast of characters that's still here basically think okay we need to get on our horses and ride now or we could be dead that's how that's how sick this is Something I'm curious about, and this is something we've talked about in AD history proper, and we talked about it with Rome, and that's the the transition of power. Yeah. And we're saying how it's, it's such an embedded thing in our cultures, it just happens. However, Rome didn't have a good transition of power. Did Rush have any plans for Stalin's death? Did they think, oh God, what's going to happen when this guy dies? Because obviously, 
he intended on ruling until his death. You know that that's for certain. But was there were there plans in place for this? So if you remember correctly, in the movie they were giving freeze frame quotes from the Stalinist Constitution about what happens after the leader mm-hmm. dies. Yes, yeah. But in reality, regardless of what it said on paper in the Soviet Union, especially during Stalin's time in the immediate decade, decade and a half later. Mm-hmm. It was more about the the practical realities of acquiring power and far less of what was going on paper. And of course, there's no democracy in the Soviet Union. So nobody's <laughs> choosing. They're just fighting among themselves and hope they've basically marshaled enough allies that they can actually enact whatever it is they're trying to do. They all learned very well from Stalin. Let's be clear about that. And they're all complicit in his crimes as well. So basically, he's off and they're all very much aware of this. And, you know, this is kind of where we get to an interesting point in this. We get two two characters that are not politically relevant, but very interesting to the story. Svetlana, whom he had with his second wife, Nadia, and his son with Nadia as well, Vasily. You know, let's start with Vasily, because he's certainly the most comedically relevant in this movie. As over the top as he was, I don't even necessarily consider his portrayal to be even all that off the mark. Mm-hmm. And the big reason for this is is a few things. Well, one is, like I said earlier, he's basically a communist princeling, and he's you know he's kind of a jerk. You know, let's be clear about that. Vasily is not mm. a great guy. He no. learned very early on as the son of Stalin that he could get away with things that regular people couldn't, despite the yes. fact that his father had a very low opinion of him. He also had a certain level of toleration for it as well, and so he was basically a total degenerate. A total shit. And he had a significant problem with alcohol. And he was very clearly damaged by the great tragedy of life in 11 years old when his mother commits suicide. You know, there was no barrier between yeah. him and his father anymore. And then they're just basically left in the care of nannies and tutors and all sorts of stuff. And because he's a Stalin son, he gets away with all sorts of stuff. When he's in school, he would bully his teachers, even though Stalin would intervene and say, you know, don't, don't take that shit from him. He ends up joining the Red Army Air Force. And he becomes a pilot. And he gets promoted well beyond his ability simply because he's Stalin's son. Not that Stalin is pushing this along. He isn't. Those in the in the military framework were just operating within anticipatory obedience, working towards what they think might please Stalin, or at the very least not piss him off. Because everybody is a potential target. Yeah. Believe me. He goes on something like 30 combat missions, but his father is very keen to keep him out of the air, on the ground, and away from the front lines which is very different than his son with his first wife, Yakov, who ends up, who is a member of the Red Army. In this case, I think he's in his early 30s. He and Stalin never got along. In fact, Stalin was very contemptuous of Yakov, even though Svetlana adored Yakov. She referred to him as, his, as her hero. Mm. He was a good guy. He, was, he had very little in common with his father. Yeah. And he ends up getting captured by the Germans in World War II, and dies yeah, apparently, story. yeah, trying to escape. Whether it was actual escape or suicide by escape is unknown. By the age of 24, he's a major general, the youngest person to ever achieve that rank, despite the fact he most certainly should not be there. Yeah, like, I wonder how I wonder how the son of Stalin became a major general at 24 years old. <laughs> not through his own abilities and actions. <laughs> many, many of the reports evaluating him are very, very low in their opinion. Mm. And so what's interesting about this is in the movie, when we first see Vasily, he's at an ice skating rink with a hockey team. And mm. this is, makes reference to something very specific. In the late 1940s, in this case, Vasily becomes very interested and engaged in 
building a really good Red Army Air Force hockey team. And he actually is quite successful at it. The problem was in 1950, that entire team died in a plane crash mm. trying to land in terrible weather in uh, Svetlovsk. Gosh. Or I think it's now, again, known as Ekaterinburg. It's just, just beyond the Volga, kind of like near the Urals. That's actually where uh, Tsar Nicholas and his family were executed, very far away. But he mm. was so terrified of his father, as he was his entire life, he attempted to cover the whole thing up. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Good luck. And so he's just trying to replace players, and that's what they're making yeah. fun of. Though he was, from what I can tell, in any way responsible for what happened, he still was too terrified to tell his father and try covering up and getting an entirely new team. And he ended up really falling out of favor, especially with his dad, during a May Day workers' holiday parade at the Red Square in 1952, when going against official advice or weather, he overruled it and ordered the, you know, basically the Red Square flyby during the parade and ended up causing the death of two pilots. And they actually nearly cr clipped one of the spires of the Kremlin, at which point his father demoted him significantly and got him as far away from any potential position of power after that. And when you look at his portrayal during the death scene at the Dasha, he was well known for saying, this is Svetlana. Not that you can necessarily trust every word she says, because she has her own stuff going on. And remember, guys, anytime you're reading a memoir, they, they may be historically significant, but every memoir ever written is a form of self-justification. There's a purpose yeah, to it. That's very good way of putting it. Love me. It wasn't my fault. Where he, he was yelling out when he first saw the body, they finally killed father. And he was most certainly drunk at the time, and they made sure to kind of get him out of the way. Then there's Svetlana, who's a much more interesting figure. Mm. How, how do you recall her performance in the movie? So Svetlana, I know of Svetlana, so I did the Ardeni Stalin's The Left yes, video. Yes, you did. A um, great video, by the way. I think it was one of the first ones I saw of yours after <laughs> the one about you. Rasputin. That's the one that of first course, drew me yes. into Name Explain. Oh, there you go. Then, no, um, she was. I know that she was his his favorite, unabashedly. Like she was his favorite child. I remember in the in the film, she's all right. She's kind of portrayed quite innocently and like, but also kind of a pill. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's the word for it. And it's weird because they all like basically when they see Svetlana show up, all the inner circle power like goes rushing over to her to basically yeah. kiss the ring. She can be seen as at like, the gateway. Like if you're in Svetlana's good books. You've got a better chance of taking over the reins from her dad. But in reality, she was politically irrelevant. Of course. Yeah, yeah. She's the blade daughter. She's got no impact on it all. And as far as the people of the Soviet Union, they, they're barely aware of Stalin's personal life, including his mm. progeny. That's just kind of how Stalin rolled. Yeah. But she's a really interesting character. And in some ways, I know it was for comedic effect, guys, but I wasn't really thrilled with how she was portrayed because she had her yeah. problems. Yeah. She had her problems. But she was very smart, very talented. She was a polyglot, and she had a tremendous ability to write. She was a great mm. writer. And she was somebody much much like Vasily or Yakov. And she, she put it best, which is, I am forever a prisoner of my father's shadow. And it was true mm. until the day she died in 2011 in an elder care facility in Wisconsin. <laughs> And her relationship with Stalin, you know, kind of in and of itself, is pretty interesting. So basically, as I mentioned before with Vasily, Svetlana was six years old when her mother Nadia committed suicide. 
Mm. And her memories of her mother were much more fleeting than they were with her Vasily. But even when her mother was alive, the key point of parental warmth and affection always came from her dad. Mm. Always. Yeah, that, yeah, his little sparrow. He, he there we go. Yes, that's right. Her. His little yeah. sparrow. Because she was the golden child. Mm. As a child, did everything right. She was good at school, well-behaved. You know, she was kind of vivacious and, and, and entertaining to him. He really loved her in a very Stalin way. You know, he was still her dad, he, mm. in addition to everything else he was. And then especially after her mother died, Stalin was it for her. But their relationship becomes a lot more complicated as she blossoms into a young woman. And it's interesting because they mention this in the movie. She learns about how Beria ends up kind of stashing away Polina Molotov from basically perishing to mm. present her as a gift to Molotov after Stalin died. That happened. Mm. That happened. And then Svetlana goes to Beria and says, I want Alexei Kopler back. Who's Alexei Kopler? Who is Alexei Kopler? Alexei Kopler was a Ukrainian Soviet filmmaker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And according to Svetlana, at least, they had a romantic tryst, but that was entirely non-physical because she always had an NKVD minder with her. Stalin didn't let mm. his only daughter go anywhere alone. Yeah. And they had kind of an awkward relationship together in that regard. <laughs> the problem was that Svetlana was like 16 years old and Kopler was in his early 40s and married. Ew. Ew. <laughs> and when Stalin found out about this, he flipped out. I can understand that. I can understand it too. From a very human perspective, I can understand that yeah. too because it's, it's very inappropriate. Yeah. But at the same time, Svetlana was also a very old soul. Yeah, but 16. <laughs> but 16 is just... With a guy in his early 40s, I mean, yeah. we're really, we're beyond pushing it here. Yeah. And so basically the retribution came down and of course, Kopler was arrested and he was sent to the gulags. And he actually ended up getting sent to the gulags a second time after getting released, but he was never executed. That's something in the movie that they suggest happened when Svetlana goes to Beria for a miracle. He's dead. You shot. That's not true at all. He died in the early 1970s. And they even tried okay. to revived their relationship later on after Stalin died when it just didn't work out. It's kind of a shooting star situation. It made things very difficult from there. That's when things really got tense. And on top of that, there was just, over time, no room in his life anymore for so many personal relationships. He was consumed by politics, which kind of yeah. makes sense. And the other thing that I want to point out here, and this is really important, is the relationship between Svetlana and Laurenti Beria. All of Svetlana's mm. mother's side of the family, the Alleluievas, despised Beria. They despised Beria because they blamed Beria for all the terrible things that Stalin did after Beria came to power, including to them. Essentially, every member of his second wife's dead family ended up in a gulag for no good mm. reason whatsoever. A lot of people think it was just Stalin acting out emotionally, but in a very calculated way in the long term. But they yeah. never blamed him for it because they still liked him. They blamed it on Beria. Yeah. And yeah, Svetlana well. was number one on that team. So there's no love there. So I think it's important that we got that out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to be sure. Definitely. And then we get to the aftermath of the death, right? We're, we're at the yeah. funeral and this is basically the second act. Yeah. And who, who steals the show? Uh, it's Jason Isaac's uh, character. I've forgotten his name, the actor character's name. I've forgotten everyone's name in this film, but Jason Isaac's general is just terrific here. Marshal Georgi Zhukov. Georgi Zhukov, that's the one. He's one of the lions of World War II. Yeah. 
for the unindoctrinated, Marshal Zhukov, Gergi Zhukov, was a true military success in every way you could imagine. He was critical to the Soviet Union defeating Hitler in the Second World War after Operation Barbarossa. He was extremely popular. He was charismatic. He wasn't terribly political, but he ended up developing a very good working relationship with Stalin during the war. He was one of the few people, especially during that period, that Stalin tolerated debating Stalin openly. Think about that for a moment. Somebody that, that's big stuff. Yeah, to actually say, yeah. no, comrade Stalin, I don't think that's the right thing to do. Yeah. yeah now, he that, picked his spots, of course, but... As you mentioned, that's quite a big thing to do, to say no to Stalin. It, it's a huge thing. It's one of the reasons why so many historians are so taken yeah. by it. And when we look at it, he becomes extremely popular, and eventually they win the war. You know, you get to, to May 1945, and the war in Europe is over, at least. Still, what's going on in Japan and Soviet, very specific role there, but that's not really critical to our discussion. After the war, Stalin begins seeing Zhukov as a threat, because he's too popular. Popular with his troops, popular with mm. the nation, popular with people of other nations. He even develops a, a really warm friendship with Ike Eisenhower. Yeah. Of anyone. Yeah. Apparently, in, in one of their kind of boozy get togethers, he was introduced to Coca Cola for the first time. <laughs> he loved it so much. He, he put in a special order for the stuff, but without the coloration so that it was clear. So that oh. way he could put it in bottles or in a flask and it would look like vodka. <laughs> and so that he would not be accused of, you know, some sort of Western uh, bourgeoisie infatuations and tastes, mm. things of that nature. you got to be very careful of that. But yeah. so, after the war, Stalin sees him as a threat, and there's a military tribunal-type situation, I think it actually may be a, a Politburo meeting, actually, where they rebuke him pretty heavily. They accuse him of things he never did. But the, the big one is cultivating a cult of personality, which I do not believe he ever intentionally did. He's just really good at his job. <laughs> and on top of that, making some aspersions to Bonapartism. Are you familiar with this concept? I imagine it relates to uh, one Napoleon, but I don't know the, the exact concept. The idea that a charismatic and a dynamic military figure can come in and co-op the revolution and take power. Oh, that's, I get why it's called, yeah, Bonapartism that's, then. That's Bonapartism. And so basically what happens is you can't really touch Zhukov at this point. He's too popular. Nobody mm. would believe that he would be some kind of agent for the West, right? Hmm. And so he gets demoted to lesser military commands. The first one was in the Odessa military district, which is kind of in what we know today as uh, southwest Ukraine. And then after that, he gets thrown way out of nowhere and he gets thrown into the Urals military district. I mean, that is the sticks for him, Yeah, for a guy that led the Red Army to, uh, to take Hitler on and defeat him. And then shortly, like a couple of weeks before Stalin's death, he gets recalled to Moscow, but he's not given any further orders from there. So when Stalin dies, he's just a general that has no position. And in the movie, they referred him as the head of the Red Army, which he was not no. at all at the time. There was nothing going on with him. He was sitting in limbo. There was some speculation that he might have been called in to consult on the ongoing Korean War, which, remember, is happening at this time. Mm. We'll get into the bigger picture later, but nothing happened. So in this movie, they say head of the Red Army. And he wasn't the head of anything. Were there not calls, as you said, he was so popular after Stalin's death, were there not calls to have him as the next leader by any chance? No, but he was certainly involved in the transition of power. Yeah. Specifically with Khrushchev 
supporting him against Beria when they took down Beria later that year, as I was telling you the story earlier. Yes. And then shortly after that, he gets appointed as deputy defense minister. And then when Bulganan steps down, he becomes full defense minister. And then he ends up losing mm-hmm. the position like 57 or 58, whatever the case was. Mm-hmm. But he and Khrushchev basically were the, the tag team that allowed Khrushchev to come to power. Okay. So his fortunes change a great deal. But for the most part, at this point in time, he was in a position to command nobody officially. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that thinking about the funeral portion. They make a whole thing about the trains and starting the trains, stopping trains, letting people come into Moscow. And then there was like some fatal shooting, which kills like 1500 people in the movie or something like that. Yeah. Did that not happen? (laughs) Not that I'm aware of, but something that is interesting to note is that the influx of people into Moscow from all over the Soviet Union, and they had Stalin's lying in state for several days for public viewing. I mean, we're talking about a line that was miles long. Yeah, I can imagine. And as far as I know it, the only casualties and, and deaths from this occasion were due to the trampling of people due to the large crowd. I think maybe even 100 people died of that. Gosh, that's such a common thing you hear about people being death by trampling. It's just awful. It is. And this is definitely one of those occasions where it would most certainly happen. Yeah. And a lot of people that do take issue with this movie really aim very squarely at the whole funeral thing. They're treating Malenkov as the leader, but in reality, there's plenty of people that hold their own personal power that they were wielding as well. And for the most part, this is where things become particularly silly. And you start talking about, the, they start showing the collective leadership. And this is where it's interesting because you're sitting, they're sitting down, they're showing these Politburo meetings where they're trying to pass everything by consensus from a, from a hand vote. And including in this meeting are both Vyacheslav Molotov, who in this movie is inaccurately described as foreign minister. He had been foreign minister, but he was removed from that position. And he wasn't even, I believe, an acting member of the Politburo or Presidium at this time, because after the 19th Party Congress, he had really fallen out with Stalin. Stalin was contemptuous of him. Even at Stalin's last great birthday ball, when he showed up, he was just dismissive and nasty to him. And had to do with a number of criticisms he had from the past that I think are almost impossible to understand, even in hindsight. So he's a part of it. And so is Anastas Mikoyan, who was a native Georgian who fallen out of favor. And he's one of the more interesting characters of the 20th century. This was a guy who was around post-Bolshevik Revolution and was also the USSR's official representative at Kennedy's state funeral. Anastas Mikoyan goes and stretches a long period of time in Soviet history Mm. where he's directly involved. And from what we can tell, both Molotov and Mikoyan were most certainly saved by Stalin's death because it was believed that eventually they would either be put into a gulag or just executed. This is something that they do make reference to in the movie. You know, there's no, I doubt there was any conversations of, well, he's on the list. I think it was just something they all understood. Yeah. There was nothing to be explicit about. And they get into this point of collective leadership. And they're all just kind of like jockeying back and forth. They're kind of playing to the idea that Malakoff is in charge, but Barry is just kind of manipulating him here and yeah. there. And so is Khrushchev and showing Malenkov as a super weak leader that has no business <laughs> yeah. succeeding Stalin. And of course, he wouldn't really succeed no. Stalin, of course. But no. that's where a lot of people start taking aim at it, to be sure, because they think it's too over the top and, and strange and just like juvenile, sophomoric lapstick. 
But as someone who's, as you proved your credentials today, Paul, who's deeply into Russian history. Well, especially Soviet you, history. Soviet sure. history, of course. Do you take much beef with it not being history, historically accurate? Or can you just see it as what it is, a movie inspired loosely by true events? Because when I watch this, like, I'm not angry. Like, I, I don't want to be one of those people going, actually, this is how it happened. I can appreciate it as just the great comedy film is that's inspired very vaguely by something that actually happened and by people who did, in some context, actually exist. That's an excellent question. Well, I'll be more than happy to answer that question in a moment, but we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domine. This is the AD History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by searching AD History Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash AD History Podcast. Also, check out the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See how you can help support the show and the rewards that await you by exploring the AD History Podcast on Patreon. See the link in the description. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. Thank you, Anna. So to your question, I almost put it on a sliding scale. Let me give you a point of comparison of how I judge things differently. In this case, this movie makes no claim to history. <laughs> no. Like I said, they play it very fast and loose. Whereas I do take exception for a movie like The Imitation Game. You've seen The Imitation Game. Yeah, yeah. And this is the difference. If you have any erudition in the subject, liberties with the story and the plot where they just totally destroy any suspension of disbelief. Mm. Having studied that conflict enormously for many years now, it becomes hard to watch because of that. And the examples are legion in that case. I can't even get into all of them. What I will say, though, in fairness to that movie, from a cinematic point of view, it was beautifully done. The acting was great. They definitely communicate some of the deeper truths of, in that case, Alan Turing's life. Mm. But at least for me, the story that exists in history and very good history of his life and involvement specifically, whether it's, you know, Ultra and Bletchley Park or all the work he did before that, or even the work he did after and just the, the tragedy that his life entailed, the real story is the better story than the one they told. Yeah. Much better. How strange. Uh, how strange to take that route to tell him more. <laughs> A not as interesting story. If anybody is truly interested in the life of Alan Turing, the movie to see is Codebreaker from 2011. That does a much better job. It's kind of semi-documentary slash live-action portrayal of supposed events. That is a much more nuanced and clear picture of who Alan Turing really was and his genius and how he thought. Whereas in this case, this is something where they're they're just having total fun and they're saying. If you're taking this as a historical lesson, you got some problems here. But we, too, are hitting at some deeper truths. Yeah, and it compares very much to the last film we watched in any history with um, being the life of Brian. Where oh, totally. Yeah, it's kind of based on historical events, but it plays very fast and loose with those events. And that's okay. I think that, that, that there is space in film. Like, historical fiction is a genre unto itself. Like, that, that's a massive popular genre. Like, yeah. there's room for things like Death of Stalin, in the same way there's rooms for things like Kubrick, which tell more accurate retellings of events. Uh, people moan about, like, oh, that's not accurate. Like, 
so what? Like, enjoy it. Like, it's clearly not trying to be accurate. And I think that's great about it. And like I said, for me, again, it's it's the sliding scale, especially mm. when a movie based on historical events takes really large artistic liberties and tells a story that's inferior to the one that actually happened. That's my problem with the imitation game. Whereas this, this is just having fun. Yeah. Yeah, it is having a lot of fun. It, it really does zero in on all the various Soviet foibles quite effectively, but it's not a historical lesson, not, you know, not, not even in the least. No. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, after the whole funeral bit, they get right into going after Beria and getting rid of him, which happened over a longer period of time. What I know a little bit more about is British comedy, and I'll just take a little moment to talk about some behind-the-scenes facts about this film. So it's directed by a man named Armando Iannucci, and despite that name, he's actually Scottish, he's not Italian, that's a whole thing unto itself. And <laughs> Armando Iannucci is one of the uh, most pivotal figures, one of the most important figures in British comedy. He he is behind so much stuff. So I just just he he's done some stuff like the Amanda Iannucci show, which he did star in himself. But by and large, he stays behind the scenes writing and directing. He was one of the co uh, one of the creators of a show called The Day to Day. I don't know if you ever heard. Of, I don't know how popular The Day to Day is. Paul, it was, it was a, a late nineties satirical news show. Satirical news like The Onion and many other things like that, and even like things like The Daily Show are so commonplace now, but the day-to-day was doing it very early on, really groundbreaking stuff, and it's hilarious. And Amanda E. Nietzsche was one of the behind-the-scenes guys in that. And Paul, have you ever heard of Alan Partridge? No, I haven't. Oh, I didn't know how popular Alan Partridge was across the globe, across the Atlantic. Um, Alan Partridge is a comedy character who's appeared in a variety of shows. He's had a movie. He's portrayed by Steve Coogan. Do you know Steve Coogan? The name is familiar. He, he's a, he's a, he, he was in Philomena. I think that's probably his big, his big film role. It doesn't matter. He's a famous sort of British comedian as well. And Armando Iannucci was behind Alan Partridge as well. And what else has he done? He did, of course, perhaps most famously recently, he did In the Loop and, of course, the television television version, The Thick of It. And it was from about that time he really started to dive into sort of political comedy. And since then, he's very much stayed more or less in the realm of political comedy. He did the TV series The Thick of It, which is about uh, the British cabinet. And of course, that starred um, Peter Capaldi, the the twelfth Doctor. Of course, I know who Peter Capaldi yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I my wife is a Hoovian. Of course, well, I, I'm a Hoovian, but I just clearly didn't pass my credentials there. But then he did Veep as well, which is I'm familiar with Veep. I haven't watched it myself. Julia Louis Dreyfus. Yeah, so he's made his way stateside, and he's done Veep as well, which has been immensely popular. And of course, oh, yeah. now he did the Death of Stalin. I think he's even done another film about David Copperfield, the uh, Dickens character. Interesting. Since since uh, Death of Stalin, he was in that. And he's just a terrific comedian. He's always been behind the scenes, more or less, but he's he's got fingers in many, many pies. Um, and he, if you see some good British comedy, there's a high chance Mandoni Nucci has either directly written it or the people who have written it have been heavily inspired by his work. If there's any great British comedy you're watching, it was either written by um, Amando Iannucci or heavily, or written by someone who's been heavily inspired by Amando Iannucci. He's a big figure in the British comedy scene. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not terribly familiar with his work outside of this movie, but if it's representative of his greater work, good God. Oh, definitely. Uh, you'd love, you would love, have you never heard of it in the loop or the thick of it? 
No, I really haven't. I haven't watched the TV series, but the follow-up film, which is called In the Loop, it's kind of like an adaptation. You don't need to know the series to enjoy the film, but watch that because that's about that's about like stateside politics. I think it's about a British ambassador and American ambassador. I think it's one of, one of James Gandolfini's last films. He's in it. No kidding. Yeah, so I would really recommend watching that because you'll probably get a great uh, someone who's very into politics and history, you'll probably get a big kick out of it. I think I will take, give that a look. Something I do want to mention before we get into the bigger part here is, for the most part, some of the portrayals in this film, we were mentioning casting earlier, mm. but one, casting Ushemi as Khrushchev is just an inspired call. <laughs> He's very good in it. He, he really picks up on the kind of humor that Khrushchev used to really deal in, which, you know, was, was very much salt of the earth crass type humor mm. and you could see that in in the film especially when they're jockeying back and forth with stalin at the boozy dinner at the dasha mm. on top of that once again also doing a good job at playing obviously these are all over the top for the purposes of comedy you know these guys were not this nuts or unstable or over the top they were much mm. much cagier than the portrayal for comedy here but that's just inspired Really, Simon Russell Beale catches Barry up in just the perfect way for how this movie is supposed to create a tone. And interestingly enough, we'll get to Jason Isaacs in a moment. The fellow who portrayed Molotov did a fantastic job. Mr. Michael Palin, you're talking about. Yes. I mean, it's not uncanny by any means, but mm. he, he actually is, he does have a certain air to him that does look like Molotov. If you look up a quick picture of Molotov, you'll kind of see what I mean. I can see, yeah, I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page now. Yeah, especially in his younger days. Well, uh, Michael Palin's a younger figure, but yeah, a bit more, a bit bit less. Molotov was a bit heavier, shall I say, than Michael Palin from what these pictures I can see, but there's definitely a resemblance there. They all eventually put on a good deal of weight, especially when they were getting what they called at the time the Kremlin tan. Yeah. So it's interesting that and Molotov was always really well known for wearing these Disney glasses that just mm. clipped to the nose. I don't think they actually showed that in the movie. And Beria was the same way, actually. That was both something they had yeah. in common. It's also something, obviously, that Trotsky wore essentially throughout his entire yes, life. Yes, of course. Yeah. So you have to really give them a lot of credit. Um, they do an interesting job of Molotov in a lot of ways. I mean, Molotov was a lot more serious. He was almost he was almost humorless and certainly did not take any humor at his expense. There was this old nickname that he had, which was called uh, Stone Ass, <laughs> and he, because he had this ability to sit and really endure these super long committee meetings. So he was a real iron bottom, and he would correct them with some malice later on. In fact, that it was Lenin who gave him the nickname Iron Ass, but they make him like this, this very, uh, vec you know, a guy who vacillated, a great yeah. deal. And an under-the-radar kind of manipulator. And he was pretty good at that, actually. Something else I found interesting about this film, and I don't know if you can share some light on this, is you see a lot where like Khrushchev and Molokov, you see their residence where they live, and they're they're living in like blocks of flats. Like, was that what was actually happening? Like, why were these such high up people in Stalin's cabinet? Why were they why were they living in flats and not fancier houses like Stalin was? So this is an interesting observation on your part. Uh, I, I can answer the question, but sometimes I'm, I, I have it's, them. It's, <laughs> no, you always have them. This is this is impressive. This is an interesting detail for the higher ups, for the most part. Like mm. especially after the revolution and when they were fully in power, 
the Kremlin itself, for the most part, housed a lot of these people. Basically, they, they would call the Kremlin a village. Mm. So they all had apartments there, including Stalin. And on top of that, many of them had Dashas of their own. They had assigned drivers, personal cars, servants. And Khrushchev, I don't, I'm not entirely sure what his actual living arrangement was at the time, but they did have specially built complexes as well for high-ranking officials or relatives of their officials that was by no means in any way available to the general public. Most people that were regular in living in Moscow at that time and for a good deal long after this was very common in the Soviet Union is that they would have communal apartments mm -hmm. where you'd have multiple families in the same apartment. Whereas if you're one of the higher ups, you're the only person living in an apartment. It can have a couple of floors. You have servants, you have cars, the whole thing. So I don't know how accurate a portrayal that would have been of Khrushchev at the time, but it's an interesting observation. So for the most part, they all had like various residences, mm -hmm. but they did live. I wouldn't say that at that time, by any means, were they living modestly, kind of like the way they were at the very beginning when they had gotten their hands on the Kremlin and they were all kind of in that one space. Stalin allowed them to accumulate various material possessions and wealth. They didn't own any of it, of course. It was all no, under, yeah. under the state, of course. But I don't know how accurate that is, but it's a fantastic question. So, yeah, it's just found it so strange about him, the kids Khrushchev, who, as we know, became the next leader of the USSR, just living in such a dingy looking flat. And thank you for sharing some light on that, Paul. Yeah, it's no problem. It's actually a really interesting question. So the last thing we're going to hit on here, mm. because it's, it's relevant not so much to the movie, but if you're an AD history listener, you definitely would find this something of value. And so mm. the question is, how did the world react when the news of Jason Stalin's death? That is something, because I was checking, I thought Attlee was a uh, prime minister at the time, but I think Churchill more or less had just taken Yeah, what you term. guys call the Indian summer premiership. Yes, yeah. Yeah, definitely not his best work. Uh, certainly nothing compared to the first climactic in his case. Churchill was an odd figure. I could talk about that because minus his war effort, which was amazing, he wasn't that good at many other things. He had genius for certain abilities, to yeah. be sure. You yeah, know, He could be a volcano of creativity, but only 5% of it was good. Yeah, that, that genius can't be like, right place, right time for Churchill. Like everything else he did, eh, we'll talk about it another time when we get close to that period of history. Yeah, he, he didn't really do, do too well as a chairman of the exchequer let's put it that way no, and he even yeah. admitted to such later on which is interesting yeah. but yeah so he was definitely the in his second premiership if you guys are not familiar he did come back to power in the early 50s after the Attlee labor government won the general election of july 1945 and they stayed in power something like six years something like that that was, yeah. that, that was a that was a time of great change in your country oh Attlee is ali's the man but i get too political Attlee's the absolute man He's a very interesting figure from a political science point of view, yeah. because he's unlike Churchill, he is very much the underestimated. Guy. Oh God, he's so boring! Like he's like he's incredibly, incredibly boring and dull. He wasn't a charismatic figure like Churchill, but he got the job done. He was very effective. In fact, Churchill used to refer to him as a sheep in sheep's clothing. Yeah, that's that's very fitting. Yeah, yeah. but he was obviously far more capable than that. He wouldn't have become yeah. prime minister if he wasn't. So, getting away from the British part. How was the world reacting to this? And the answer is the world was very confused, actually. I mean, it made world news once they, course, once yeah. they broke it. And so the question is not even so much the greater world, but what about the Western powers? How are they looking at this? And at this point, 
Eisenhower had only been president for like a couple of months, not even that much, like six or seven weeks. And he went into his presidency thinking like, oh, how do I deal with, you know, how do I deal with Stalin? They're confused. They don't know what to do. This is the Cold War at this point. There's no question about it. On top of the fact, and I mentioned this very tangentially earlier, the Korean War was going on through all of this. It mm. had been going on for a couple of years. And though we're not going to get into that story about how that all went down, because frankly, we just don't have the time, but <sighs> we'll put that off to another day, guys. Something to look forward to. There is this whole idea about, well, one, trying to find some resolution to what they called the Korean conflict. And then two, well, what do we say? How do we react? And how do we engage with this new Soviet leadership? You know, who's really in charge? And certainly on the American side of things, there's a whole bunch of different ideas of what they want to do. You know, do we try to take advantage of the situation in some way that would be beneficial to us? Do we show outward sympathy? Because, you know, before he was our adversary, he was also our ally. So it's a difficult position. And they go round and round and round and round, and they're trying to consult everybody who has some idea, everybody from George Kennan, who, of course, is basically the, the granddad of American foreign policy to the Soviet Union, the Cold War, especially if you're familiar with the long telegram. And in the end, they almost did next to nothing. They didn't know what to yeah. do because the idea was, well, if we try to take advantage of the situation in some way, you know, we could end up really pissing off the Soviet people, which they were not at all interested in doing. And they didn't also want to come off to the new leadership as being these really underhanded jerks that were trying to undermine their transition of power. So they were trying to get a real grasp on who was in charge, what that means, mm -hmm. how will that change the greater situation, and what do we do in the immediate? And the answer at the end of the day was almost nothing. I mean, they did release like some kind of statement, but they let it breathe. They let it breathe. To their credit, when Kennedy was assassinated, that's largely what the Soviet Union did as well. And Khrushchev was in power at that point. Remember, those two, in addition to about a billion other factors, were, were locked in mortal combat to either initiate or avoid the Third World War during the Cuban Missile Crisis, which only occurred one year prior to that. So they, they kind of let it breathe. And in the case of, you talk about Great Britain in this case, because we're still very much in this special relationship sphere. Though it has waxed and waned over time, it's something that has been one of the fundamental bedrocks of 20th century and now early 21st century diplomacy around the world. Our two governments, in so many ways, are much closer than any other two governments in history, even today, regardless mm. of who's in power, like intelligence sharing, things like that. You look at the Five Eyes Agreement in terms of intelligence sharing and data collection, all of these sort of things, in addition to a very tight integration in NATO, you end up developing long-term ties. What can I say? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Churchill really wanted to take advantage of the situation. He always believed that there should be a great summit between the Western powers and the Soviet Union to try to find a way past what they were experiencing then. And he tried it several times. One, he suggested it to Ike shortly after Stalin died, and, and Eisenhower basically just said, blank off. Yeah. We're not doing that. And even his own cabinet, Patrick, was strongly opposed to this. Gosh. He thought there could be one more parley at the summit, and this could be a possibility to do it, which is insane to think yeah. about. Yeah. So the world's reaction, depending on where you were, was either very, you know, very forward, very, very much in sympathy or very quiet, to be sure. Even some reporters ended up catching 
than former President Truman just kind of walking around his hometown of Independence, Missouri, and asking him, you know, what do you think about what happened? And he basically said, because they met face-to-face at Potsdam in July 1945. He basically said, I feel for old Joe. Personally, I liked him. Unfortunately, he can't do what he wants. The Politburo, they won't let him, which was Mm. the, the constant misperception of Stalin throughout his rule. It didn't it worked absolutely the opposite way. So it was a very muted reaction, but there's no question that there were very specific consequences from this. The biggest one, Patrick, undoubtedly, mm. is allowing an exit plan for both sides in the Korean War, that there could be some kind of negotiation that would lead to the armistice that officially still exists, might add. It was just an yeah. armistice. There's no peace treaty that's ended the war. No, it's yeah. technically still going on. Yes, yes. Yeah, I know about that. There's all of that. And so, naturally, it's this huge moment in the 20th century that Armando Iannucci has managed to poke fun at. Yeah, just and that's something this film doesn't particularly represent. You don't really hear much about the outside world. This is a very Russian-centric uh, film. Like, despite they all no have mention, British accents. Yeah, despite all the British and American accents. And, yeah, like, you, you, it doesn't mention the Korean Wars going on at the same time. It doesn't mention anything like that in particular. And perhaps that's representative of... How self-centered, this is me going into English student mode, perhaps that sort of represents of how self-centered all these people really were, they didn't really care about what was going on outside, they just cared about themselves and what was happening in their lives. Maybe that's just me, like I said, that's me being a film student slash English student, go back to my younger days. I would say at that time and place, they were certainly far more inwardly focused than they were managing Soviet Union foreign affairs, which is, I think, understandable and kind of expected, to be sure. Yeah. Also, another thing that did happen, and this is kind of where we're going to end it, is some of the what happened under de-Stalinization. Mm. Well, one thing to note is that the doctors who were imprisoned were released not terribly long later, because everybody knew it was a it was a BS conspiracy that was yeah. being perpetrated by Stalin, and he made many of those such false conspiracies throughout his rule, mm. without a doubt. It was a way for him to knock off certain people that he felt were becoming problematic or somehow a challenge to him or whatever it is that he was trying to do. The number of individuals where this was the case who were otherwise innocent or had legitimate objections, the list is just legion. It's just legion. In addition to the Great Terror having many different phases, not just towards the party, but then the Red Army and the Soviet populace in general. And with the Soviet populace in general, it was just done on statistical quota. It didn't really yeah. matter who you were. It was matter that you met a number and that the quota was met. And not only were these quotas being met and being centrally orchestrated by Stalin, those who were carrying out the purge, whether it be imprisonment of an individual or the execution of an individual, they looked at this as just strict class warfare type of thing. Those who were carrying it out throughout the country would look to overproduce their quota and surpass it as well, which is absolutely insane be yeah. sure. But yeah. Khrushchev's probably one of his biggest successes mm. when it came to his destalinization. There's many things that we could talk about. I wish we could talk about more of them. We don't have time, but yeah, we'll get there. Is when he played a pivotal part in releasing a large number of political prisoners that were in the gulag that were considered enemy of the people, but it was abundantly clear that these folks had done nothing wrong. And we're talking about, if I understand and recall correctly, releasing people in the number of millions that were wow. falsely and over over a few year period. But, and this is something really interesting to note, 
this was not initially a popular move in the Soviet Union from the Soviet populace. They had bought into what Stalin was dealing. They thought that they were releasing unsavory and enemy elements back into the populace, when in reality, most of them, the vast, vast majority of them, were just innocent victims. Western mm. intelligence agencies, of which Stalin always, almost always used as part of his conspiracy theories, had more trouble penetrating the Soviet Union and getting actual human assets than you can possibly believe. I mean, there's this interesting mm. story when Kim Philby is in MI6, and his, his handler, this is during the war, asks him to look into the Soviet operations by Great Britain, which was out of his particular department and specialty. His was focusing mm. in on the Iberian Peninsula, so Spain and Portugal. He managed to get his hands on it, and when he opened it up, there was nothing in there because there was nothing that the British could do in terms of penetrating the Soviet Union. And so when he reported it back, they didn't even believe him. Mad. Yeah, just ridiculous. And on top of that, Khrushchev also uh, started a, a number of inter-party democratic reforms, especially at the highest level with the Presidium, Central Committee, things of that mm. nature. Not general populace. This is still very much a dictatorship. And in the case of Stalin, he built a dictatorship within the dictatorship. He became a despot. If you guys mm. would go all the way back to season one, when we were talking with J.J. McCullough and we were talking yeah. about despotism with Domitian, that's the kind of thing we're talking about with Stalin, but with a far, far greater blood toll and a far more capable figure. He had a real genius for dictatorship. And the movie closes quite, quite fittingly with Khrushchev sitting at a concert. And behind him, a couple rows back, is clearly an actor portraying Leonid Brezhnev, who would be the one to utilize the inter-party democratic reforms that Khrushchev instituted in 1964 when he was orchestrating Khrushchev's ousting. Mm -hmm. And we close to black in the credits. What goes around comes around. That's entirely it. So guys, I know this one was kind of on the long side, but there's a lot to say here. There's a lot yeah. to say here. There's a lot to learn. So if you haven't seen the movie, now you've listened to this, go watch it. Or if you've seen it already and you've listened to this, go watch it. I think this podcast is going to be longer than the movie. Shit, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Us here, you there. And we'll be back right after a word from Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Well, that does it for us today. Patrick, where can people find us? You can find me personally, primarily on Instagram at NameExplainYT. But you can also find me on Twitter at NameExplainYT. And of course, on YouTube, search NameExplain. What about you, Paul? In addition to my usual work at TGNR at TGNReview.com, you can find me at my Twitter handle at PKD in History, as well as my reader-submitted World War II Q&A column, The World War II Brain Bucket, where I answer all World War II-related questions, which, if you are on YouTube, we will have a link down in the description. That's all today for myself. Goodbye, thank you, and take care. Yes, thank you all so much. Until next time. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at ADHistoryPC 
as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash adhistorypodcast and Instagram as adhistorypodcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. For Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History. We'll see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.